comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your host CJ Walk from Mofka is up next. Good morning and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and agriculture here in the state of Maine. Brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is CJ Walk, and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. right here on WERU. And before before we get going, I'm happy to say we're back live in the studio after a couple months of pre-recorded shows and uh, and uh, one cancellation. So um, it's good to be back here live in the studio. And so for today, on today's show, we're going to be discussing uh, cannabis cultivation and hemp production in Maine with a focus on the many applications in which hemp can play a role in producing new sustainable ways of living in a world-facing climate change. And my guest today is Alexander Liebster. So Alex has over 15 years' experience in the cannabis and hemp industries, focused on cultivation, extraction, and product development, He has a passion for high quality and a love of helping others. After seeing many families positively impacted by cannabis as medicine, he has begun a a project focused on hemp production for material science applications with an emphasis on working with other farmers to to promote new technologies and the potential economic growth that can come from a sustainable cooperative industry model. So, Alex, thank you for being here today. No, my pleasure, CJ. Thanks for uh, thanks for the opportunity to come and chat. It's a subject that's near and dear to me, so it's uh, it's fun to talk about. All right, great, yeah. great. Well, I'm looking forward to today's show. Um, and I'll also, at this point, let listeners know that about halfway through the show, about 10:30, uh, we'll open up the phone lines for any questions or comments that you may have. Um, so to get to get going here, I think. Um, <clears throat> With Alex here in the studio, I just wanted to maybe give you a minute or two to kind of introduce yourself to the sure. folks that are listening, and uh, then we can kind of jump into the topic for today. Yeah, so. Ab- absolutely. So uh, I've had about uh, 15 years or so, like you mentioned, in the space, um, 10 of them more so in the limited license market here of New England with the uh, a lot of dispensary operations that have come to light. Yeah. Um, so I've initially started with the uh, Thomas C. Slater Center in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, and started with cultivation, system automation, and control. And uh, from there, being a vertical license, we needed to uh, focus as the industry called for it for extraction services and understanding that concept and more getting into milligram-specific formulations of the types of products that we wish to have on the shelf. Um, And so we... uh, Started there and have worked with uh, a number of other dispensaries throughout here in Maine, uh, New Hampshire, a group called Sanctuary TC there, as well as in Massachusetts. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I've been in it for quite a long time, but, um, yeah, venturing into extraction services and getting into uh, cultivation, but by far my most prized, uh, I guess, or, or thing that I'm most emphatic about is the pediatric epilepsy and oncology cases that we've kind of helped out with and have kind of mm-hmm. walked uh, some families through. So it's been a real enjoyable experience there. Okay. 
All right. And can I ask if um, a lot of this work, has this been kind of individual or with a group of people or different um, organizations? Yeah, definitely different organizations. Okay. I've, I've played an individual role, but certainly in participation with, you know, many other passionate people and folks that really love the space. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, as we get into talking about uh, hemp production here in Maine and some opportunities, uh, thinking about the plant as a crop for sustainable agriculture sure. systems, as well as uh, other community pieces. I wanted to ask you if we could just kind of um, get some of the terminology and definitions out there about uh, thinking about the things we mentioned a little bit earlier when we were getting prepared for the show and kind of the use of the word cannabis, the use of the word hemp. Sure. Um, are there distinctions and maybe just give the listeners kind of a brief overview? Yeah, certainly. So, so vocabulary. I yeah, guess. definitely. At least from a preliminary, uh, you know, high level perspective, the uh, hemp and cannabis definitely do have different definitions as it is currently. Uh, hemp in the state now at this point here is anything that's generating less than 0.3% uh, THC content mm-hmm. um, is going to qualify as hemp, whether it's for flour or for uh, hemp herd or fibers seed production. Mm-hmm. Um, and then cannabis obviously being um, any variety of strains, honestly, what still qualifies as cannabis can be high CBD varieties, which is what hemp is known for. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly, you know, anything that's above that 0.3 would qualify as cannabis versus hemp itself. But hemp is a pretty distinct crop as far as uh, a lot of variances between it, whether it's for material science applications or again for flour, there's, there's quite a variety out there that would still qualify as hemp. Okay. And that really gets into the different maybe <clears throat> strains or hybrids or crosses that are used depending on what the actual product is you're looking to produce. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, just like anything else, just a, a phenotype that's representative of your end result as far as your wants, whether it's for fiber production or more mm-hmm. uh, for CBD product production. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like if you were going tomatoes and maybe you wanted to make some sauce or maybe you wanted to make some paste <laughs> or maybe you wanted a fresh salad. Sure. I mean, there's lots of options out there. I guess that's what I'm just trying to to introduce here at the beginning. Sure. At the beginning. Um, so I think in uh, if we could touch a little bit on some of maybe the medical side of things or yeah. medicinal uses when we think about, um, we hear a lot these days about CBD products that are coming out. Sure. Um, and I thought maybe you could just give a little bit of a definition and explanation yeah. of what those are roughly. Sure, yeah. CBD being uh, cannabidiol, it's a non-psychoactive, or at least the most famous non-psychoactive component in, in cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also in hemp. Yep. Um, but yeah, prolific gains. I mean, we've done a lot of work with um, pediatric epileptic families uh, from infants all the way to you know mature adults that um, have had pretty prolific gains from where they were situationally prior to with just a pharmaceutical option, mm-hmm. um, either in conjunction with cannabis or the ability to uh, slowly wean off of some of their other pharmaceutical options. We've um, It's been the most tangible gain where uh, I guess in cannabis there's a common misconception that folks are just getting high or there's this you know notion of euphoria that's associated all the time where uh, the reality is, is when you can get to tangible figures where kids have gone from 100 seizures a week to 20 a month and have been mm-hmm. uh, more cognizant of their environment and more involved with their family as far as interaction, it's it's uh, it's pretty prolific. Mm-hmm. So a lot of different options that exist and, and more so, you know, depending on the situation for an individual patient, if you are... Uh, suffering from a serious illness or a compromised immune system or uh, cancer that you would 
typically choose a product, or at least we'd be mindful from a formulation standpoint that the carrier oils and the ingredients that are incorporated into the final product are also uh, conscious, let's say, for your condition. Uh, mm-hmm. An example, I wouldn't give a cancer patient uh, 20 cookies a week to manage their pain with all the sugar that's there, given that it feeds the original condition. So yeah. uh, it's just yeah. more of a mindfulness in you know giving uh, doctors or giving any medical providers more of a feel of control and an idea of transparency and trust with um you know, what is actually in the analytics? What do you have in the formulation? What do I have control of and how do I modify for, you know, further research and development? Mm-hmm. And so, okay. Yeah. All right. And then within that, I mean, just curious for the, the medical uses, um, the benefits there, is it kind of like the CBDs are kind of uh, mimicking other naturally produced things in the body, or well, it's, you would say it's CBD from the non-psycho. Yeah, without getting too technical, it's it's focused on a different receptor site in the body. So yeah. you have um, basically a different impact. Uh, CBD, as they're exploring it, has uh, anti-proliferative properties, anti-inflammatory. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a ton of um, research that's kind of being underdone now at some university level. Um, but even from an anecdotal perspective, that seems to be the more common thought for people to pursue CBD medicine. Mostly what attracts them is the non-psychoactivity yeah. um, and more so kind of the wide availability um, and then being able to uh, explore THC as an option. And there are different, to, to point out, there are different formulations of CBD as medicine or different varieties, I would say, in the sense of um, an isolate, which is a purified version of CBD as a cannabinoid by itself versus a whole plant, high cannabinoid, high terpene oil. Mm -hmm. Uh, The terpenes are your aromatic compounds that Mm -hmm. physiologically make a very large difference in how that person's going to experience that cannabinoid itself. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether it's uplifting and euphoric or sedative and narcotic, the uh, aromatics that are there can be very relevant. So you have some formulations in the market that are just made from isolate and then some that are more whole plant derived and uh, varying effects between the two as far as the reports. But, um, you know. All right. And you mentioned a little bit uh, I just wanted to ask a little bit on the research side of things. It seems like, sure. is it uh, um, maybe legality of the situation that sure. research has been kind of maybe hampered over time? But Yeah, um, I would say. And I mean, as, as things have become more relevant, um, you certainly have some universities that are more willing, particularly with CBD products, to do uh, research, especially in states that have legalized programs and have kind of come up with a formal structure for that. Yeah. Um, but even more in the realm of, say, nutraceutical or pharmaceutical manufacturing. I've seen a lot of companies and I've spoken with a lot of companies that are seriously researching and investing pretty heavily into um, pathway research, understanding CBD as a cannabinoid and all the way it interacts. And even just, I mean, research and development from a multitude of aspects, whether it's medicinal or whether it's material science derived. Um, I've heard of companies replacing mineral makeup with CBD isolate as a powder. I've heard of, uh, you know, a ton of different applications. So there's definitely an interest in investing and and more so that, um, I guess, from a legality perspective, yeah, the challenges previous have been universities sort of unwilling or other larger institutions unwilling to explore, mm-hmm. um, where now that there seems to be a path for a little bit clearer of a definition onto how the industry might evolve, that there's their comfort level and their tolerance for risk is uh, becoming more uh, more absorbing of that. Okay. All right. And I imagine <clears throat> just thinking of some research university levels, if there's maybe grant funding uh, involved at the federal level would be less likely, but maybe something on a lower level would be more 
acceptable thinking uh, in the different state areas where, where there's different legal programs. Yeah, and I, I haven't heard of any grants, at least up to this point. Most of the research or like most things in this space are through efforts of love and self-funding or through investment capital. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, I don't know of any federal or state grants that are uh, you know, at least applied for that at this point yet. Um, yep. I would say that most of the applications that I've seen that might be potential for grants would be more of the material science derived, yep. um, you know, applications. So. Okay. And I know, um, well, roughly about two years ago, we did a show here on Common Ground with Mofka's Clean Cannabis Program, and it seemed like yep. a lot of the information there was, um, I don't want to say anecdotal, because maybe that doesn't sound serious enough, but it was definitely people speaking on real-life experiences, working with people with different conditions, oh, sure. and seeing these results. Yeah, and know? I would think from a clean cannabis perspective, you'll find, at least it's been my experience in the space, that a lot of folks um, who get into cultivating cannabis, particularly for medicine, um, mm-hmm. they're pretty generally very conscious of uh, at least their growing methodologies as far as environmental impact. Um, So I think there's that desire there inherently amongst those who can subscribe to, you know, cannabis either as a medicine or as a a material and and sort of just an agricultural crop Mm -hmm. that the methods in which you go about producing that product are mindful for the world in which we're, you know, kind of in and engaging into. Definitely. And it seemed like even talking about medicine, you want to make sure you're having clean medicine, or if you're sure. trying to get away from pharmaceuticals that have maybe some attached issues. Yeah, and it's a it's an odd along. it's an odd dichotomy, really, because you the the fact is it's an agricultural product and it's grown in a field or it's grown in an in, in indoor controlled environment, but it could be with if you're an organic producer, it could be with uh, actively aerated compost teas, which have bacteria and have mm-hmm. fungi there. So it's more whether it's decided to be treated as a pharmaceutical versus a nutraceutical or just an agricultural crop is there's a tough variance because I'm a firm believer that uh, I guess your rights end when the rights of others begin. And while everyone has the right to cultivate their own product and the ability to do uh, their own sustainable health care, when someone goes to offer a product to the public marketplace, um, the example I give is a bakery location is the what differentiates us are our recipes, but the fact that we have to keep mm-hmm. our cleanliness in the same capacity and wash and have a hand sink and what have you. Those, that type of regulation I think is good, but having the balance of two and where in the end it gets classified or what products are treated as such is still kind of to be determined. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So definitely a lot of uh, quality control, quality assurance along the way. Sure, absolutely, especially when you're dealing with those with a compromised immune system. Mm-hmm. You know, it's conscientious thought of not just from an extraction stand, you know, standpoint, but understanding where the material is coming from, what mm-hmm. um, you know, pest remediation techniques that were utilized, whether they were organic or um, with pesticides. So just you know, from a consumer standpoint, to just be ultra conscious on where your product comes from and understand the protocols that they have in place to mm-hmm. assure that they have a quality product, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So there are no contaminants or residues sure. and working even, its way in. Yeah. And even just understanding that the <clears throat> formulation is milligram specific, if it's accurately labeled as such, is it in fact what the claim is, mm-hmm. um, which is a challenge, whether it's from a formulation standpoint or otherwise, it's, I don't believe it's uh, so much an intention of someone trying to not include all the medicine that they're trying to sell to someone, but more a factor of homogeneity. Uh, if they're mm-hmm. making 100 or 10,000 of the same product, how is that? Uh, their, what is their manufacturing SOP as far as ensuring that homogeneity? So that's mm-hmm. more my focus. Yeah. So making sure that everything is exactly the same across the board. <laughs> that's right. right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, are there any 
just kind of touch a little bit more on the on the medical side of things before we get into um, some other focuses. I'm just wondering on the medical sides of things, any trends or you know things that you see with your experience over time. Boy, that's uh, from a that's a pretty broad stroke <laughs> to paint. But yes, I would say yeah, trends. I mean, uh, it depends on which side of the market I guess you're really playing on. I mean, there's this uh, common large scale approach, um, you know, that is. Uh, they're, I guess, kind of all over the place. Whether uh, whether it's uh, it's more of a, I guess, I would say a, a the best analogy I can come up with would be a, a craft brewery or craft beer perspective, where mm-hmm. you have the Anheuser Busch's of the world and the ability to purchase a thirty rack of uh, Budweiser for a reasonable price point, but you also have the clientele or, or patients or others that care enough about quality that. Um, not necessarily that they're willing to pay a premium price point, but more so that the measures that are taken and ultimately a quality product um, mm-hmm. generally afford more cost. Yeah. So I think there's both aspects to kind of consider. But as far as trends go, um, I mean, yeah, there's a lot more formulated products on the market. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of isolate being had from large-scale CBD that's shipped from overseas. And a lot of... Um, I guess if I were to call it a trend, I would say more the trend is a lack of um, typical regulation on labeling as far as where a product genuinely comes from or what type of product it is. Mm-hmm. Um, even from milligram specificity, you don't necessarily see whether it's in reference to cannabinoids as far as how much is there or whether it's just strictly weight of a certain kind of oil that's making its way into a formulation. So I think that from a trend perspective, not to to negatively highlight, but more just um, kind of acknowledge what's going on in the space in some degree and what measures still need to be had from a transparency efficacy standpoint Mm -hmm. and um, ultimately, I guess, education for patients to understand what medicine is working for them or not Mm -hmm. and what adjustments might need to be made at that point. Yeah. So really, as as there's growth in the market, it's really being educated, being cautious, uh, understanding what's going on, because we're also talking on a global scale of, you know, ingredients could be coming from international internationally absolutely and the standards again like elsewhere are very different so Mm -hmm. it just depends on um i guess the kind of product that you're seeking whether it's for adult use or or, um, whether it's specifically for a serious medical condition you can be more subjective but Mm -hmm. i think that um ultimately i think with any product i would tell anyone to purchase whether it's cannabis or in any other industry but to educate yourself to the best of your capability to know what manufacturing practices they use mm-hmm. and what type of carrier oils they're using for say tinctures or capsule products etc yeah. um, educate yourself in the best quality of ingredients and find what works for you mm-hmm. and then i guess it'd, <clears throat> it'd also roll in into a little bit of we talk about keeping it local oftentimes here on sure. Common Ground Radio and <laughs> sure. organic farming in, in Maine. So knowing your farmer, uh, I think, extends into this realm as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. Well, I just want to take a minute to remind listeners that you're tuned into WERU, and this is Common Ground Radio. And uh, I'm CJ Walk, your host for today's show. And my guest on the show is Alex, Leap- Alex Leapster. And we're talking a bit about uh, cannabis and moving into some hemp production here in the state of Maine. Sure. And yeah. <clears throat> thinking about it as kind of an, an agricultural crop and the viability for its growth um, on farms and maybe even growth for the farms itself. Sure. Uh, so I was wondering if you could just kind of introduce us a little bit. Um, yeah, to hemp some of that the, side. Yeah, and sure, some, some of the, the opportunities. Uh, the opportunities there that sure. maybe 
you've you've worked with in the past or seen but um. sure well i would think of the, at least the hemp opportunities that my group is currently working on and, and others in the space that i know of it seems um there's a, a heavier focus on combining intellectual property with hemp as a biomass material mm -hmm. and what i mean by that is more technologies that exist out there especially in the northeast corridor where we are where technology is and uh development is pretty high um, there's a lot of um, unique intellectual property that can apply and substantially differentiate and change uh, hemp as a biomass material for a specific application, whether it's plastics manufacturing or textile use, that I think the idea of getting into hemp strictly for fiber, um, especially given the world market that sort of exists for that standard product as it is, the opportunities, I think, more lie in um, research and development of genuine intellectual property applications for hemp as a biomass, mm -hmm. um, high-performance plastics, the ability to create uh, sustainable water bottles, et cetera. Um, that type of technology or that type of protection that's required for organic polymers are um, a portion of intellectual property that, that we personally are seeking um, and, and researching now and looking into. But um, as you get into... Um, I guess more of a, a model of economic growth for me and let's say or economic impact. If I look at our medical program the way that it is currently designed and if, if everyone's applying, uh, assuming everything is legal, then mm -hmm. you're ostensibly just trading the same money in the same state. It's going to the retailer, to the mechanic shop, back to the mall, et cetera. And you're not really creating any opportunity for genuine growth where if you're looking at material science applications and the ability to create construction materials and biofuels and sustainable plastics that allows for farmers to cultivate a product that's relevant, certainly in today's environment, mm -hmm. um, to then set for more of a national or international distribution model. Mm -hmm. um, I think you know part of that challenge of uh, cultivators or, or business owners in some way for us is looking at how do we impact and have this kind of growth in the sense of business, but also how are we mindful in the sense of our uh, impact on uh, the environment and mm -hmm. transportation and how that, that method gets done. So, um, you know, there's a conscious aspect to developing those technologies, but more the opportunities I would think would come from uh, if you're able to couple your intellectual property to, say, um, a biomass contract in the sense that um, a company who wishes to make bottled water as a, as a bottled water uh, beverage, um, if they have the ability to do it in a hemp bottle, I mm -hmm. think the licensing of that technology is one portion of it, but the opportunity to then create a biomass contract for those manufacturers with working in, in tandem with other farmers to meet that demand and supply. Mm -hmm. I would think the intention for us might be to supply and look at supplying genetics for the farmers themselves and then having sort of an offtake agreement that's pretty traditional in agriculture as it is, mm -hmm. um, but as a model for maybe some of the farmers that really wish to diversify at nine cents a pound for potatoes and 13 cents a gallon for milk. I know a lot of my neighbors are, are sort of in hardship mode and, and really looking forward to an opportunity to explore hemp from what they're hearing. And there's kind of a big, mm -hmm. um, a big hustle about it. So, um, I would think that the opportunities really exist from building materials to specified, uh, you know, high performance plastics, uh, semiconductor industry, that kind of stuff that mm -hmm. if I was looking for a model for growth for me and that really could create an impact, that would be, you know, what I define as an opportunity. And that's what you would refer to as the material science applications. Absolutely. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. 
And are some of these things, just thinking about, say, lumber, for example, or the water bottle, are they being tested out or we know that it's possible? Sure. Yeah. You'll find that a lot of companies, most of this technology, a lot of it started overseas. They've really made mm-hmm. um, in the Netherlands and in the UK, they've got a lot more, um, I guess, progressive stance as far as hemp cultivation and the differentiation that yeah. uh, we necessarily haven't enjoyed in the States for, for a very long period of time. So. Um, I would say, uh, yeah, they're a little further along in those technologies, but I, I do know, uh, cars, there's a, a gentleman named Bruce Dietzen in Florida who has a, um, hemp sports car body company that he claims to have manufactured a, uh, hemp body for a vehicle, mm-hmm. uh, for a sports car that has a hundred times the strength of steel. I've mm-hmm. heard of, uh, companies who have two by fours and two by sixes that they're advertising as termite resistant material. Mm-hmm. Um, I've biofuel companies uh, there's there's just a lot that's being explored at this point with hemp and it's kind of overwhelming frankly the amount of opportunities that the industries of what it can impact but what's required at this stage is really a lot more of the research and genuine development to bring those technologies to light mm-hmm. and part of that takes uh takes investment capital and uh, legal structure that allows you to do that yeah yeah and what <clears throat> i guess what makes um what makes the plant so unique or so versatile? What is it about the plant that it can be used in so many different ways? Well, I would say depending on your use of it. So um, the unique aspect, I mean, cannabis has a has sort of an energy and a spirit all, all in its own. But in the sense of uniqueness, um, the fact that it's generally um, low nutrient requirements, low pesticide application requirements, mm-hmm. you um, have a pretty sustainable model for large-scale agriculture when you're talking about planting hundreds or thousands of acres. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from a uniqueness standpoint, I think you have just the multitude of uh, components that are a part of that plant that can be utilized in a million different ways, mm-hmm. um, whether it's the cannabinoids themselves as far as for isolate production, like we were saying, for a mineral makeup type of, of material yeah. or even in plastics manufacturing. I do know uh, some folks who are manufacturing polymers with the cannabinoids as a structure um, that's critical to that plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to uh, look at, I guess, whether it's material science or even food-based products or simple things that others can do at home, it doesn't necessarily require, I guess, let me highlight too, that it doesn't require a in-depth you know, um, heavy-handed research and development for all materials, right? Yeah. There's, there's a beauty and a simplicity to hemp as it is that um, hempcrete, uh, you know, lime water and, and hemp is, is kind of a game changer for a lot of folks <laughs> in building materials and just simple, simple yeah. formulation. So um, I think the beauty is in its simplicity or maybe the uniqueness is in its simplicity, but also in the complexity in which can be had if someone was to dive deep enough for how to not only create a product, but then also create a sustainable model for making that a, a viable business. Mm-hmm. And for more long-term production rather sure. than short, short-term gain. That's right. So is part of it, um, if you speak about lumber, is part of it, it's an ingredient in, in the mix with other forest products? That's right. Yeah, it's a composite okay. material, yeah. Okay. And yep. the same thing with plastics. That's right. Just yep. the characteristics of it have, uh, can be used to kind of build out those to products. build out those products exactly yeah. right okay. yeah you've seen companies that they uh will take hemp into sort of if you're familiar with graphene as a material but it's more of like a powder mm-hmm. um so 
there's a lot of companies that are in a cryo mill taking whole plants to a powder and then from there building off with whether it's conjunction with other materials or just yeah. solely hemp yeah. um you know the amount of applications that can be had there from at least the initial research we've done is pretty astounding there's a lot of uh excitement around just the different industries in which uh others are getting involved in at this point um but you know one thing you mentioned too i think that was interesting was instead of a long-term instead of the short-term play the long-term side and i not to get to go back to a trend that you'd mentioned you know as far as what i see as trends is in the past few years it's really been um a lot of groups and a lot of organizations that seemingly are more for a short-term play mm-hmm. um and from a qa qc perspective particularly for products that it was um more relative to financial gain and the opportunities in the market and not for all groups by all means but the commonality was focus on finance in lieu of quality products or sustainability or consistency for the patients, uh, which I think now as the industry is growing and evolving, I'm seeing a lot more folks who are um, mindful of the products in which they're manufacturing, mindful of their approach, and they're looking at it as this is what I want to do with the rest of my life, not necessarily uh, to build a company for two or three years and sell it. So that uh, was an interesting point to make. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I think that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, will be, I think I, what my next question was thinking of, uh, farm applications, um, or just growth of the plant in a way. Um, I guess my question would be if you thought that if you were just treating it like another plant you're growing in the garden, say, sure. what would... For the Northeast or for here in Maine, kind of what would that propagation look like over time? Yeah. Over a season, I guess. Well, so it could be as simple as planting seeds in the ground, or it could be as further and complex as planting from uh, genetics in which you have known results from and known calculations from either from cloning or uh, micro tissue propagation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the things to definitely be mindful of in the hemp space as it grows is how it affects and potentially affects cannabis farmers. Um, being that if you were planting from seed, the uh, probability of you planting a, a very large population of males is is definitely very relevant. Yeah. Um, and from that standpoint, pollen drift uh, from the males has been a concern as far as cross-pollination between hemp and the cannabis farmers. Yeah. Um, our standpoint as far as how we are going about it is more um, from micro-tissue propagation of uh, phenotypes that we've identified that qualify as compliant within the space and within the, the um, constraints of our program here in Maine, mm-hmm. um, but also allow us some form of genetic diversity by the, the way that we're planting them. So from our standpoint, we're taking uh, tissue culture plants at stage three cutlets and then utilizing yeah. uh, equipment to plant them out. Um, as they're planted out, if you were looking at, say, just a, a square acre at 208 by 208, uh, generally about 1,800 plants mm-hmm. uh, in six by four sections with two foot rows. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of been a standard as far as how we've approached it. But um, others are going just from seed and doing mass plantings and what pops up pops up. It also very much depends whether they're doing it more for flower production for cannabinoids versus, mm-hmm. say, a material science application. Mm-hmm. Um, so the important thing, I think, would be to focus on genetics that are suited for our region as yep. far as um, you know the timing of, of when they would mature and finish off. And then also kind of identifying with your own land and what you have available to you you know, what is the most logical option or what, what side of the market are you generally 
interested in targeting? Is it more immaterial science side or is it more relative to CBD production and, you know, that kind of model? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Great. Well, let's take a minute to remind listeners, this is Common Ground Radio. Uh, we're talking about hemp production here in Maine um, and uh, potential for, you know, farm growth in, in the future. And uh, at this point, I guess I'd like to, or I should say, our, my guest is Alec Le- <laughs> Alex Liebster here today. But at this point, I think we'd like to look to open up the phone lines here for people to call in with any comments or questions. And that uh, the toll-free number is one 625 9378 if anyone has um, any questions or, or comments here on the show today. Um, I would like to stick a little bit to that cultivation piece just to understand kind of the cycle as well. So if you're talking sure. about kind of cultivation or propagation through through plant tissue, mm-hmm. um, then you would be generating, say, seedlings that would be planted out in the spring. Is there... Yeah, so with, with tissue culture, the idea is to create an exact genetic replica of the donor plant or, yes. or which, which it was from. Yeah. Um, so at that point, once we have a donor plant that we've done analytics on, meaning mm-hmm. that we know the cannabinoid content, its tolerability for mold microbial resistance, um, time frame in which it's going to finally mature, um, and then more so from the cannabinoid standpoint, which concentration of cannabinoid is it finally destined for? Is it limited to a, a total of 5 or 6% concentration, or is it upwards of 12 or 15%? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are all relevant factors to consider when you're you know, farming for that specifically. Um, but yeah, I would say, um, yeah, depending on, depending on the approach or depending on which, uh, which one you're targeting ultimately is, is, uh, is the question. Okay. And that's really where the genetics for the region come in. I mean, you're looking for certain characteristics for a certain product. Sure. Exactly. So you would be looking for the different genetics depending on what you were looking to make as your final, as your final product and considerations from a medicinal standpoint would again be the terpenes, which are the aromatic compounds we we spoke of. And, um, and the cannabinoids and the concentration and the ratios in which they're produced. Are they, first of all, are they compliant with our state program? Do they all meet below at full maturity, this 0.3 or less concentration of THC? Mm-hmm. Um, and then beyond that, which terpenes are relevant within that formulation? Uh, again, are they more known for being up euphoric and uplifting, or is it more yeah. relative to sedation or, or a narcotic effect? Okay. Okay. And if someone was looking to do this, on their own farm, I'm just thinking, you know, here here in Maine, how would you, you would be able to propagate and grow these things out outdoors um, through the season? Would it need to be indoors and sheltered, protected? Yeah, I would. So I know that uh, a little bit of both. Yeah. yeah. So from most, most cultivators I know start indoors and there's just uh, Gary Fish, the fellow who runs our program here in Maine. Yeah. Uh, they have a dictated time of when those plants need to be in ground. Yep. So most folks are starting in, um, you know, seed trays or flats, yep. uh, getting to a point of maturity in some degree and having plants ready to plant in ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of standard protocol. I mean, I've seen others, uh, large scale farms, depending on, you know, if you're doing an acre versus, you know, 500, um, and the guys that are doing from seed, they're using, you know, seed spreader and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just laying the seeds in the ground, have a light tillage, scratching the soil and yep. hope for what pops up. Yeah. So. And is there, um, can the genetics be guaranteed through the seed production if they're, if they're propagating on that, on that scale? Yeah, guaranteed to an extent, guaranteed to an extent as far as, with any variability of a seed crop, you have different 
phenotypes that express themselves, right? You'll yeah. have at some point through um, going through multiple filial generations of that plant, as far as breeding, you'll have some stability that starts to increase and yeah. then um, more consistency. But you have some some seeds that are um, variables where you've, I mean, we found um, plants that come in at a two to one ratio from certified hemp seed previously. So mm-hmm. it really relies on the individual to understand where their product is coming from yeah. and then also requesting a lot of the uh, what they call COAs or certificates of analysis on our side um, just to understand what all those ratios are at a full-blown season you yeah. know um, from that standpoint um, the other option is I mean there are more stabilized genetics from seed um, some groups from overseas and in Canada um, mm-hmm. but usually a lot of that requires an importation license yeah. um, so you have farmers who have it readily available you have some who've had uh, their own breeding projects through the license program here in Maine since last year mm-hmm. um, so it just kind of depends on the source of of where you pull them from but if you were going from clone ultimately I would certainly say to get a COA and understand everything about that plant before uh, yeah. producing in large scale. Yeah. And then if you're looking to, I mean, kind of year after year, how do you maintain something? If you're, if you're growing these, uh, you know, say you're growing these outside, you're harvesting for biomass. So mm-hmm. you're taking the whole, whole plants that are out there. Sure. Are there kind of like mother plants somewhere that are being kept? Yes. And yeah. grown so, special? Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the tissue propagation lab. Yeah. yeah. So the, the value of a lab space is particularly with micro tissue propagation is your ability to proliferate, let's say, larger volumes of plants in a much smaller space and also maintain a larger genetic library within that same space. Yeah. So, yes, absolutely. You would you would maintain a mother stock or mother genetics to then proliferate for the following year and yeah. you know, be prepared there. And are there, in terms of life cycle of the plant, at some point is the plant, you know, is the plant going to die? Is it going to peter out? Is it, not, is it going to lose value? Uh, uh, in the sense of the mothers, uh, you are able to keep those genetics uh, rolling for, for years on end or keep that plant alive for years on end. Provided that single plant? The light cycle. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so it depends. Okay. There's a lot of different theories with genetic drifting and things of that nature out there. You have people who subscribe to keeping a mother plant for as long as possible, five and ten years, that they'll bonsai yeah. out and... And uh, just use as a consistent donor. You yeah. have others who will just take one plant of the same strain and use that as their donor from every single uh, time that they produce. Mm-hmm. So a lot of different varying opinions. And um, some are concrete and some are more subjective to uh, to further research to really validate. Okay. All right. Well, it looks like uh, we do have a caller. We have Nico, I believe, from Northport. If you'd like to go ahead with your comment or question. For sure. Hey, and I'm from Eastport. Eastport, Maine. sorry. Yeah. Um, like to thank you for sharing your knowledge on the radio this morning. Sure. <laughs> um, so I am a Mofka certified uh, cannabis grower now this year. And I'd like to be able to tell my patients exactly what's in, you know, exactly the compounds that are in the product, their medicine. Um, do you know the future of, of testing? Because, I mean, right now all I can find is $25 kits that just uh, are very general and, and just tell you the THC, and I don't even think they tell you the CBD. But do you know anything about the testing? 
Yeah, so I would say uh, definitely. I mean, there's all kinds of test kits, like you've said, you've identified that are out there. Um, realistically, I think when we speak of compounds, it depends on what compounds you want to identify. And um, in some degree, the way we're approaching it is having the analytics on site for us as an internal group. We have a HPLC and a, what's called a GC mass spec to analyze all of our products during that manufacture. And that's more from a time point. Um, the fact I can submit testing out to a laboratory, to a third-party lab, but I'm waiting a week, two weeks sometimes for turnaround time, depending on their schedule. So just from a in-house analytics perspective, we're able to look at um, – cannabinoids and terpenes, um, at least the 12 that we're, we're looking at. But um, they're, to identify every single compound or component in a formula, I think there's the definition of the idea of testing is not just throwing a product in and there's a machine that's going to spit out uh, you know, everything that's there. It's all about the standards that are loaded into that piece of equipment to analyze off of a standard. So most labs in our space are relative to, like you're saying, cannabinoids, whether it's THC or CBD or whether it's the terpenes that are relevant. Um, obviously, the major side for us is more the pesticides, mold, and microbials as far as just a, a measure of QA, QC for all the patients. But um, yeah. you know, that it really depends from a cheaper standpoint and from a, a general knowledge standpoint, some of those, um, like thin layer chromatography tits, kits, like you're describing, um, at least from my experience, they're notoriously pretty inaccurate or at least pretty subjective as far as the measure. Um, exactly. but yeah. yeah, it's, if you're understand that, I think I look at analytics, if there's a lot of debate, if, uh, labs, which labs are accurate and what's right and what's wrong. And really from the lab standpoint, a lot of the results that they get really depends on their prep work. And yeah. if the prep work yeah. isn't done in the same capacity all the way through and through, or if there's certain things that they're not measuring for, whether it's moisture content in a flower or, um, you know, the type of carrier oil that they're using or what they call the matrix that the product is in, whether it's sugar base or, or an olive oil base, um, there's different prep methodologies for each. So that's why with different labs, you'll end up with some are subscribing to what they call a national standard. Some are using their own proprietary uh, methods yeah. for prep. So you kind of have a lot of subjectivity, but I always look at analytics as sort of a window into that product and not necessarily uh, looking for some concrete answer. If something is 24 MIGs or 25 MIGs, I view that as a point of reference for uh, not not to get crazy on a on a hundredth of a milligram or things like that. So yeah, I've also heard that there's um, there are labs, especially in California where I used to live, um, are now corrupt because it you know all it does is a uh, all it takes is a little bit of money from a large grow company um, to pay off yeah. a laboratory just to get the THC levels and more presentable. Yeah, depending on the reputation of the lab, I mean, that's that's kind of been another challenge in some degree is the lack of regulation as far as the requirements from an ISO standpoint for how that laboratory operates has certainly created those challenges where um, I think if you're looking at it from a business model as a laboratory, you can easily see how someone would become a pretty unpopular fellow for constantly failing your product or not giving you favorable results. Or if there's another uh, company that's giving you an extra five points or that their prep is five points higher than the average for this lab, you yeah, find yeah. kind of the discrepancies are you know, whether they're true to their model of morality and consistency as a laboratory as they should be, or whether they're incentivized to just uh, remunerate themselves off of, 
lab tests that they believe they're required to do that uh, the state sets as a mandate in some degree. So some of those cool. relationships exist, but I think you'll find that if you go out to find the right provider in a right laboratory with a good representation and also one that has some ISO accreditation to it, that the standards that they're held to and the methods that they're held to to do it keep them pretty consistent as far as the PrEP methodology. Yeah, yeah. Um, one more thing. I, I um, attended a conference uh, last weekend, the Bionutrient um, Food Association Conference in uh, Southbridge, Massachusetts. And they just came out with a nutrient meter to test uh, food, the quality of food, because there's so much poor quality uh, food out there these days from poor farming practices. <clears throat> I just, I wonder the future of testing cannabis with, uh, you know, a handheld um, meter or, or probe like that um, for, for just the homeowner or, you know, for anybody, the gardener, to purchase cheaply. Yeah, I've, there's a company I know of called MyDX that has a little device that they've uh, put out there that's more of a homeowner model, let's say, of uh, more of a picture. I, I wouldn't use these units, let's say, for, at least from my experience, from a specific milligram concentration. But if you're okay. looking for whether a product is CBD or THC, as far as the dominant, those can give you a pretty decent picture. The same with those thin layer chromatographies. They can give you a good, cheaper picture to get subjective information um but more so just it's the the nature of kind of the device itself it uh sometimes traveling with laboratory equipment especially analytical equipment um you know is a challenge as far as the accuracy so the the resolution in which they're measuring in is different from specific results you'd want a laboratory but from a broad picture view you can certainly look into any of the handhelds or you know thin layer chromatography stuff yeah yeah which which is i think at this point pretty costly to go to a laboratory i mean depending on which one you go to but um i i assume it'll become cheaper in the near future um, to go to a laboratory to get specific results um sure okay. yeah all right okay nico thanks for calling yeah. in we do have another caller on the line we want to get in um we really appreciate your call and your great questions uh, but we do have Melody from Sedgwick on the line, if you'd like to go ahead with your comment or question. Thank you for such an informative program. Um, I have been using some CDB, CDB for um, instead of Oxycontin after some uh, joint replacement surgery and wondering how we can really know. Uh, I, I was recommended a website called CBDMD. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for where you can you know that you're getting quality. I mean, this website says that they have their own organic farms. They lab test it's pure CBD. Um, so that's that's my question. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, and it's a it's a question that a lot of consumers generally face is, you know, where do I know that my product is quality? How do I know? And what type of product are they formulating with? Um, the key thing to consider is that isolate as far as just pure CBD with none of the other plant constituents attached generally is the accepted model from a business standpoint to actually distribute products in a, in a national setting. It's the way that they maintain their THC compliance. So um, 
from an effectiveness standpoint, I can certainly say that whole plant, high cannabinoid, high terpene oils have been much more effective uh, for plant for patients, particularly for chronic pain or um, seizure conditions, things of that nature. As far as movement disorders, they've been much more effective. Why that is, I can't say yet. I think anyone who really proclaims some type of expert status in the space is um, sort of being untruthful in some capacity. We're, we're really 10 or 15 years out from understanding the endocannabinoid system and how it functions and from a pathway standpoint, what actually is effective. But we do have this you know, pretty quality anecdotal evidence at this point and, and overwhelming numbers of people who are gaining prolifically from, from those types of products versus the traditional options like you reference that they're usually using. Um, as far as quality suppliers go, I think, you know, more so that I would look at just the analytics that they would include with their product. I would ask questions like, is it isolate or whole plant oil? Um, what kind of carrier oils are you guys using? Is this uh, like a cheap grapeseed oil or an MCT oil, or is it something that is uh, cold-pressed, full-spectrum um, carrier oils, which have a lot of compounds such as polyphenols and such that are great for inflammation and pain as it is? Um, so I would just look more to interview them like you would any other product, so to speak, before you put it into your home, you know, and especially into your body, you would really want to educate yourself on not just the compounds they're referring to, but, you know, what they stand for as a company in general. Um, so that that would be my truthful recommendation. So you're saying that um, not not to use pure CBD, but CBD with some THC. Well, and it's, it's not to say not to, well, and, and the difference between whole plant and even with some THC, yeah, I would say that it's not not to use it. And again, subjectively, I've, I've heard of a lot of people that have used isolate products um, and claim, you know, prolific gains for themselves. I've heard a lot of other people say that they're less effective. Uh -huh. So it seems to be from an endocannabinoid standpoint, um, as far as the system, and they're very unique and individual from person to person. So some will experience different products or different uh, compounds differently like than another. Like any other drug. That's right. That's right. So yeah, it's. I would say that commonly whole plant oil has been more effective. So I would never say to someone, don't use it. I would just say more, yeah, this educate yourself. Yeah, I and I would say educate yourself, and that's definitely more of a, a comment. So it's it would be mostly a CBD isolate product with a standard carrier, and MCT oil being that it's USP approved usually and uh, kind of approved for a long shelf life. It lends for larger manufacturing, something that might sit at a retail store or a gas station type of a setting for a, mm -hmm. a period of time. So. Um, if your focus, let's say, on really high quality as a consumer, then I would I would encourage you to look at what carrier oils they're using, understanding the product, really educating yourself on you know the individual um, cannabis oil that they're incorporating, but also the final formulation and mm -hmm. how that affects and benefits you. But it, it's truthfully going to be different for everyone. Right, right. Okay, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for calling in, Melody. Um, and. I will give out the call-in number or the, the phone number for any questions or comments, which is 1-866-625-9378. And, um, and we've been talking about uh, hemp production most, mostly here with Alex Liebster um, on the show today. So 
I guess one thing I didn't ask Alex, uh, if you don't mind me asking, is like, how did you how did you get into this? Oh like, wow, that's a great question. I mean, actually, I don't know if yeah. that's a really really long story. And no, no, we might not have at another all. call coming in, so I might sure stop you. But I'm just curious uh, what what the background was. Yeah, to get I'll here. give you the high level of it is actually my uh, aunt and that used to live in Islesboro. Um, she had a five year battle with pancreatic cancer. So uh, to be 100 percent truthful, I was always involved in the cannabis scene as a youngster and, um, you know, throughout. And um, I think what really changed my viewpoint was seeing uh, her last weeks of pain, the fact that we were able to have tangible conversations and able to um, kind of really create some very special memories for our family prior to mm-hmm. um, that that really, I'm, I guess, naturally just a person who if you, uh, well, my father always told me that you don't negotiate over the price of your garden hose when your neighbor's house is on fire. And I think that that stuck with me pretty clearly. As And when I realized that from a cultivation standpoint and a product development standpoint, what comes easy for us and many other caregivers throughout the state is really just a great opportunity to help others. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I got into it from that standpoint and just I'm honestly kind of a nerd as it is. I love science and uh yeah. and botany and and all that stuff so it's just uh something i gravitated to very quickly okay well we do have another caller uh we have dina from from verona on the line if you'd like to go ahead no we lost her okay all right well the call-in number we might have room for one more question here before the end of the show 866-625-9378 um so that seems to be in the folks that I've interacted with, it's really come from there's some type of personal uh, situation or history. Sure. And even from an education standpoint, you know, those that typically are against cannabis or, or um, say, let's say don't agree with its consumption in some way, it's my experience has always been that until they themselves or a loved one is positively impacted. And I can understand the idea of them not wanting to see their loved ones smoke or combust cannabis. But when I start getting into a tincture product or uh, transdermal patches or a um, salve that's rubbed on topically made with other natural ingredients and to see the gains that come from them and the feedback they get from their family, Mm -hmm. that's when they kind of open their eyes a little more to understanding what the plan and what, um, you know, this medication can do for them. So. Like it washes away any type of stereotype or it stigma that, that may be there. It's um, a helper. Yeah. It looks like we do. We have one more caller. We have Ed from Cushing on the line. Ed, if you go ahead with your comment or question in just our last few minutes here of the show, we'll we'll try to wrap sure. it up. Thank you very much for uh, for taking my call and for the great show you're doing. Thank uh, you. The question I have has to do with two things. One, as a, an investor in the cannabis industry and as an advisor to seed saver organizations, Uh, my concern from your description so far is that many of these varieties are going to be um, cultivated and engineered to a monocrop. Would cannabis end up like corn or um, other crops that have um, pretty much had bred out a lot of the variety in the plant? And uh, is that a risk to the industry as you look at the different applications and uses of the uh, from industrial to medicinal? 
cannabis? That's an awesome question, Ed. Thanks for asking that because that's that's a topic I'm definitely keen to is uh, the idea of cultivation of, of hemp as a monocrop and then sort of on the investment side as well. There's a lot of different directions to go with it. Um, but I would definitely say that from the standpoint of monocropping, I think part of the idea is that it requires the cultivator to have a sense of personal responsibility to identify strains in multiple phenos. And for us, I would look at, in our library, we're hoping to have anywhere from 100 to 500 different phenotypes that qualify under our program. And in how those plants are planted in a field um, is in diversity so that there are no two plants that are sitting next to each other that are the same and hoping to have the idea is more of a calculated result on the cannabinoid concentration and in turn the yield in which you would get at the end of the season but from a farmer's responsibility standpoint certainly being conscientious of the mono cropping and also the uh, pest and microbial uh, proliferation that can result as such um, so certainly one thing i would look at and in relation to the you know investment standpoint I would say that it really depends on the direction of, of your familiarity with um, you know the investment space within cannabis. You have groups that are trying to create, frankly, a monopoly uh, via the same model as similar to a Monsanto as a GMO crop or placing markers on certain genetics that they're patenting and trying to claim some type of creation to. Um, and then you have others that are seed saving in large volumes and maintaining a, a mega diversity where I think the key for a responsible farmer would be to start sorting through a lot of these seeds to create and diversify and continue to replicate via a logical structure of, of micro tissue propagation and a seed space to, to do that work, but to continue to offer new genetic varieties and put new genetic varieties out there that all qualify and from an investment standpoint to look at it as, well, we need genetics that are qualified for farmers that wish to do 100 or 500 or 1,000 acres. Where do they source them and how do they know them? And from an investment comfort standpoint, I mean, in my, traditionally in our world, is the investors have been much more comfortable placing that capital once they're aware that there's a solution uh, to a legal crop in some capacity. Going from seed or going from that variety gives you a lot more variability. So... Um, I would say it's definitely a danger and something to be mindful of um, as far as the direction from the investment world in which it could potentially go. But I do have a lot of faith in the growers that I've met and the people that I've interacted with as far as them being conscientious human beings who understand the impact of the planet and what we can do. Okay. Thanks for calling in, Ed. And we are getting to the end of the show. And sorry to raise the finger and try to slow things down <laughs> no, at the end of the conversation. I'm uh, but this has been Common Ground Radio. Today we've been uh, talking with Alex Liebster uh, about cannabis and hemp uh, production here in Maine. Um, and just maybe the last closing seconds, I don't know, Alex, if you have any kind of words of encouragement you would want to throw out there or uh, – yeah. It's definitely it's a until we hear the jingle. Yeah, it's a fantastic oh, yeah. opportunity. I would think to explore hemp is is something I think that from an impact standpoint, from the again, like you mentioned at the beginning of the show, the world that we live in is facing global warming and climate change as generality. So, from yeah. an entrepreneur standpoint, what do you do to take responsible action towards that, and what do you stand for? Okay, um, that'd be my standpoint. All right, great. Well, we're coming to the end of the show here. I'd like to thank uh, Amy for engineering the show today. This has been Common Ground Radio. I'm uh, your host, CJ Walk. We can be heard the, the first Friday of every month here on WERU. And stay tuned for uh, On the Wing.
You are listening to Community Radio WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. On the Wing is up next.